but just know I'm doing it out of love. I love you all. It's, and you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. Um, so uh, I've been, um, I, ju- I recently finished John Mark Comer's latest book. It's called Practicing the Way. And it's brilliant, highly recommend. But he opens his book with this line. He says, uh, in, in the very beginning, this is the first words in his book. He says, who are you following? Everybody is following somebody or at least something. Put another way, we're all disciples. The question isn't, am I a disciple? It's who or what am I a disciple of? That's how he begins. And I think it's a really great place to start. So I highly recommend it. If you haven't read it, order it, get it on your Kindle, get it, you know, get it on your Audible, whatever, however you read your books. And, and if you don't read books, get it and read it. Um, it'll be worth it. It's, I highly recommend it. But, but this, this as a beginning, it kind of already starts to rub our modern sensibilities, doesn't it? Like, because actually we're conditioned these days to think, well, no, 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 I'm not following anyone. I'm writing my own story. You do you, right? Be true to yourself. That's the mantra of today, right? That's the, like, so no, 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 I'm not following anyone. I'm writing my own script. I'm charting my own way. I'm charting my own path. The trouble is it's just not true. It's just not. There's a a zillion dollar industry out there, technology, social media, marketing, advertising, uh, out there, zillion dollar, uh, you know, like it's just, (laughs) that is absolutely aimed at shaping, it's like mass behavior modification. That's what it is, it's absolutely aimed at telling you what to think, how to feel, how to behave, what to buy, what to, right? I mean, it is. And you carry it around in your pocket all the time. My good friend Sam Harvey calls it a weapon of mass distraction. That's pretty good, eh? You know, a weapon of mass distraction. We carry it around in our pockets all the time. Our, 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 our smartphones are, and, and you gotta, you got to just kind of take a moment and pause and step back and you go, okay, if that's true, if that's really the world that we live in, and I think it is, then let's ask the question, what kind of people are we becoming? What is that actually forming us into. If that's shaping the way that we think, if that's shaping the way that we behave, the, the things that we buy, the things that we start to value, then what's it actually doing to us on the inside? What kind of people are we becoming? What's the end? Have you thought about this much? Like, well, like who am I actually becoming? Because it's, it, we're all being formed into something is the reality. That's, that's Coma's point, really, is actually we're all being formed into something. Have you stopped to think about what that actually is? We're all being formed into something that's part of being human because we do all grow and change and it's part of God's design. So play it out in your own mind. You know, you 30-year-old, sketch it out 50 years into the future. Imagine yourself at 80. You know, imagine yourself at 70 or 80 or, or 100. You know, the trajectory of your life right now, if you were to sketch that out and envision yourself at that age, what kind of person would you be? And when you think about the kind of person you might be, does that fill your heart with joy and anticipation and excitement or dread? Because the truth is, we're all being formed into something. John Mark Comer writes, he says, for those of us who desire to follow Jesus, here is the reality we must turn and face. If we're not being intentionally formed by Jesus himself, 
then it's highly likely we're being unintentionally formed by someone or something else. So again, who are you following? Of course, the deeper question is, is one of trust, really, under, underneath it all. Like, it's who or what am I going to believe in? Who or what am I going to entrust my life to, my whole life? You know, what, who am I going to actually entrust it to? And do I actually really want to entrust it to myself and my own wisdom and my own best ideas? Or to any other human for that matter? I mean, after all, aren't we the ones who put us in the mess that we're trying to fix? What makes us think that we've got the bright ideas to be able to get us out of that, right? So who are you following? Who are you believing and entrusting yourself to? Because let me just go on the records, right, 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 up, right up front, right from, from the very beginning. For me, it's Jesus. Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, the Messiah, the awaited one, the one who is King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who the scriptures say every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord of all. For me, it's Jesus. And I settled that deal with the Lord a long time ago and for decades now, I've been not always getting it right, but I've been trying to pattern and follow after him. Because here's the thing, As I look back on human history, I do not find anyone as radiant and as glorious and as lovely and as just winsome and compelling and beautiful as Jesus. I don't find any philosophy or way of life more compelling or sophisticated or coherent or or resonate more deeply than the way of Jesus. And I'm convinced then that we, will, we won't find anyone else. No celebrity, no guru, no one else yet to come will ever come close to matching that. And so I'm all in. I've settled that a long time ago. I'm all in. I'm following Jesus, you know, because I know, and, and, and I stand alongside a vast multitude is what Hebrews tell me, tells me, you know, like in the, in, the, in the New Testament, Hebrews says, I stand alongside a vast multitude of others who have also taken that stand and followed Jesus. It's not just me, you know, like many of you as well, you know, kind of, we're, we're all in this together because out of the myriad of options, he's the one I'm choosing to follow because I know in the end, I'll follow someone. And so I'm choosing Jesus. I'm intentionally choosing Jesus. And Dallas Willard uh, once said that there is no problem in human life that apprenticeship to Jesus cannot solve. There is no problem in human life that apprenticeship to Jesus cannot solve. Think about it. Following Jesus is the solution to this, the problem of this so-called human condition. So name your concern, whatever it might be. Political polarization, climate change, the mental health crisis we're living through, the uh, addiction or racial injustice or the looming global war or, 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 or widespread hypocrisy among Christian leaders simply our inability to be kind, Willard would say there is no problem in human life that apprenticeship to Jesus cannot solve. And so this morning I'm calling my message a call to greater devotion. And we'll be looking at Jesus' profound invitation, come, follow me. Three simple words, but perhaps some of the most significant ever uttered in all of human history. Come, follow me. So, in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter one, 
Starting in verse 16, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and with their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, and, and for, uh, he Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Flip over to Mark chapter 8, we'll continue reading, where we see, then Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples, and he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory and with the holy angels. Friends, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So picture the scene. Imagine Simon down there, the Sea of Galilee, waist deep in the water, casting his net. His brothers, you know, Andrew's just off a little further down, casting their net, doing what they always do, day in and day out, fishing. For they were fishermen, is what the text says. And then, out of the corner of their eye, they spot Jesus coming down the beach. Likely, with like a rabble of people all surrounding him and following him and you know all that kind of stuff because and they would have noticed they would have tuned in right away as soon as they saw Jesus coming along they would have gone oh there's Jesus they would have recognized him because Jesus had been around about town saying and doing things that no one had ever said or done before and so everyone would have been talking about Jesus and here he comes down the beach and you can imagine the moment right when Jesus he looks dead in the eyes of Simon and Simon locks eyes with him and he says Simon Come, follow me. Andrew, come, follow me. It says they left everything to follow him. Jesus, they carry on down the beach just a little bit further and he picks up two more, same thing. Drop everything, follow him. Now for you and I, when we hear that, we go, well, that's a bit of an extreme response, like come follow me, they leave everything. I mean, this is their source of income, right? This is, their, this is their well-being that they're kind of putting on the line. They're risking everything to go follow Jesus. In our modern minds, in our modern sensibilities, this seems like way overreaction on behalf of Simon and Andrew, and the, right? I mean, like, why would they do that? But that's because we don't understand the Jewish education system. So let me tell you about the Jewish education system for a moment. Don't worry, it won't take long. I'll I'll keep it pretty brief. The Jewish education system was set up in such a way that everyone, every every it was it was it was boys only. So like, I didn't do it. Don't blame me. Um, You know, it was only it was only the boys. And so at five years old, all the boys would go to what was called Beit Sefer, 
or the house of the book. It was this little room usually set right alongside of the synagogue, the local synagogue in your town or your village or city, wherever it was, and you'd go there from about five years of age and, and they would study. This is how they would learn and it wasn't just about like education in terms of you know, reading, writing, arithmetic, all that kind of stuff. It was more about being educated in the being, what it meant to be the people of God. And so they studied the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And by the age 12 or 13, they would graduate from Beit Sefer with the first five books of the Bible memorized. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Some of us struggle to read a chapter a day. Uh, then they would go, you know, basically at that point, they would be blessed by their teachers and sent back home, you know, like good on you. And, and majority, vast majority of people would go back home, learn the family trade, learn, you know, apprentice to their parents, learn the family business, contribute to the family, all that kind of stuff. And, and uh, live a godly life that honors the Lord, you know, all that kind of stuff. And they'll go do this. Um, but the best of the best students were invited to continue on their education. This would be like going to university level, right? So 12, 13-year-olds being invited to go on into Beit Midrash. Now, this was called the house of learning. And over the next five years, those who were 12 to 13 would spend their days studying the rest of the Old Testament. So by the time they were 17 or so, graduating from Beit Midrash, they had the entire Old Testament memorized. sets the standard pretty high, right? At which point, the teachers would bless them and send majority of them go home, learn the family trade, live, an, live a life that honors the Lord. But the best of the best of the best, this is like the PhD, graduate, you know, you know graduate school, post-grad, you know, whatever, you know, kind of education level, would go on and apply to a rabbi now, they didn't need to know just all of the Old Testament. They needed to actually know each rabbi's unique set of interpretations and teachings and way of life. And so they would apply to the rabbi and the rabbi would grill them. It was like the entrance exam, would grill them with all these questions like, okay, well tell me, how do you understand this story of the Nephilim in Genesis chapter six? What do you make of that? They, you know, like they get into like some real kind of weird and wonderful stuff in the Old Testament. You know, like tell me, how do you interpret the differences of interpretation between you know, this rabbi and that rabbi, and what do you, where do you stand on that? You know, they grill them and all, and the reason why they would really press and grill so hard is because they were trying to assess and determine, can this young man become like me and do what I do? Does this young fella have what it takes to become a rabbi himself, because then by the, uh, basically, uh, if so, if so, if they felt like convinced, yes, this guy's got it, then they would say, come, follow me. That was the invitation given from a rabbi, the best of the best of the best, to then come follow me. Incredible invitation. And so they would leave everything and go follow their rabbi. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they were with their rabbi. They traveled together, they slept together, they ate together, they did all of the things together. There was this Jewish blessing at, uh, at the time where you know, any, any disciple, any follower of a, of a rabbi, they would say, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Literally, may you walk so closely to your rabbi that the dust that's kicked up from the dusty roads off their sandals begins to cover your own robe and your own cloak 
May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. May you imitate them and model them. May you walk so closely to them that you hear their slight little murmurings, not only their pronouncements. May you pick up everything. And then basically they would model their whole lives around being with their rabbi, trying to become like their rabbi so that they could then do what their rabbi did because then at about 30 years of age or so, their rabbi would turn around and bless them and say, now go and fish for people, was the blessing they would give. Essentially, go and be a rabbi, make your own disciples. That was the blessing that was given at around about 30 years of age. So, that's the background, that's the context, and it makes a whole lot more sense why Simon and Andrew and those first disciples would leave everything in order to follow Jesus, because they were out fishing, meaning they're not following a rabbi, meaning they're not the best of the best, and yet here comes this rabbi who says, come, follow me. Incredible invitation, isn't it? And so they follow him. And they, the name, the, 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 the words in the original language uh, for uh, a follower or a disciple of a rabbi is Talmud in the Hebrew, and, or, or Talmudim, it was, was often the way it was, is the plural of that word, um, which literally just means a student of a teacher or a philosopher. In other words, an apprentice. It's probably the best way of understanding the, the, the education system of the day. It was, was, it was like more apprenticeship kind of a model rather than just you know, go and study the books and learn all the right things and be able to take a good exam. And, exam and, you know, you're actually learning the practicalities of what it is to, to apprentice after someone. So Talmud or Mathetes, Mathetes, Method, I can't forget how you pronounce that, in Greek is, is the same word in Greek. So in the New Testament, the same word is used there. And, and here's the key point. These words are nouns, not verbs. So to call someone a disciple is a noun, not a verb. So for example, so here, I'm gonna step on some toes for a second. Grammatically, it makes no sense to talk about discipling someone. Think about that. Because disciple is primarily a noun. We don't talk about like someone who's a believer believering someone else, do we? Or someone who's a Christian, Christianing someone else, right? Or like, to use the language of an, of an apprentice, you don't talk about a plumber plumbering someone else, do you? It, 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 doesn't, like, it just doesn't play, right? And, and so the same is true here, that a, a disciple actually is someone you are or you are not. And, and this, isn't just, this isn't just semantics. Here's why this matters. Here's why this really matters. Because if a disciple is something that's done to you, right, in, in the verb sense, then it puts the onus of responsibility for your spiritual formation on another person. Maybe it's a parent, or maybe it's a pastor, or maybe it's a life group leader, or maybe it's a mentor, or whoever it might be, right? It, it puts the, rather than you taking responsibility yourself to say, yes, I'm gonna follow Jesus, and I'm gonna apprentice myself to Jesus, you know what I mean? Uh, so, so whereas if a, if a disciple is a noun, in other words, someone we are or are not, then no one can disciple you if you wanna talk about it in those terms, which I'm saying we probably shouldn't, you know, but Rabbi Jesus himself. We follow Jesus. And you need to choose that. You need to accept the invitation, come, follow me. 
you need to take responsibility for that. And if you choose to enroll as a student or an apprentice of Jesus, and I hope you all have and do, um, then it means tomorrow morning when you wake up, your central driving passion and pursuit in life is to reorient your entire existence, your whole world, every part of who you are around three key priorities. Being with your rabbi, becoming like him, and doing what he does. That's the call to follow Jesus. Now, this isn't the same thing as being a Christian, by the way. The word Christian is only used three times in the New Testament. Did you know that? And usually it was used in a derogatory, belittling way. Christians eventually adopted it and they, they, liked, it, they liked it enough that they kind of claimed it and made it their own because in its best sense of understanding, it meant little Christ. These people who were trying to be like little Jesuses, you know, uh, essentially they're like, that's who we wanna be. And so they claimed it and they said, yeah, let's make that true for us, right? But, but it's not the same in terms of our current, con- our, our current context today, I don't think. In fact, so the word Christian only appears three times in the New Testament the word apprentice or disciple 269 times. Just to offer a little bit of perspective. You wanna understand what Jesus is really about? This is what it's really about. And a disciple is one whose life is fully oriented around being with Jesus, becoming like him, and doing what he does. We apprentice ourselves to him. John Mark Comer goes on and he talks about, you know, the problem is in the West, we've created a cultural milieu where you can be a Christian, but not an apprentice to Jesus. Let that settle just for a minute. Does that ring true for you? Does that ring true for anyone else that you know? I think it's dead right. And I think in a lot of ways it has something to do with our understanding of the gospel. I'll get to that in a moment. Let me turn the knife just a little bit with this Willard quote. He says, the greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs is whether those who are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. Oh, isn't that stunning? Isn't that, I mean, A, it's sobering and challenging in the front end, right? Like to go, actually, will Christians choose to be disciples, genuine apprentices of Jesus? Because if so, steadily learning from Jesus how to live, get this line, the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. That stunning vision of what is possible, right? That's an incredible picture of what God wants to see happen. And I believe this is what God wants to see happen today in Ototahi, in Aotearoa. This is what God wants to see happen through His disciples here in 2024 and in 2025 and it's starting to happen as as more and more people are waking up to the truth that actually maybe our way of coming into church or coming into faith has actually not served us particularly well. See, maybe if you're anything like me, you grew up in a church where, um, where you were invited to become a Christian 
And, be, and, and in order to become a Christian, you, you, know, you came to a meeting where someone preached a sermon and they told you about Jesus dying on the cross for your sins and, uh, and, and all you need to do, and this is a free gift of salvation that's offered to everyone, all you need to do is receive that gift for yourself and you can become a child of God. Wonderful gift. You can do it right here in this moment. Amazing gift. Now, everything I just said is absolutely true. I believe it wholeheartedly, okay? I'm just saying, I don't think it's the full picture. Because if that's all we say yes to, putting up a hand and saying yes in a moment like that, I don't know that we're actually discipling our lives to Jesus. I don't know that we're actually following Him and apprenticing Him and, and learning His heart and learning His ways and allowing His truth to reshape and reform our minds and our thinking, to allow His words to reshape our very hearts and the motivations of our hearts, to, to reorient our entire lives. You know, I think, there's, I think they're different things. I think the call to follow Jesus is one to get so the life of Christ in and through us so fully that the natural overflow, the natural outworking of it is that the kingdom of God was actually the fuller way that Jesus talked about the gospel, through, you know, to see the kingdom of God being outworked and embodied ways in every sphere of human existence. And I say yes and amen, I'm in 100%, let's go, come Lord Jesus, <laughs> let's, let's, get, let's, let's do it. In fact, Perhaps the way that Jesus talked about the gospel and the good news most fully is in the Sermon on the Mount. You familiar with the Sermon on the Mount? It's kind of the core of the gospel message. In, in Matthew chapter five, six, and seven, we, hold, we did a whole extended uh, teaching series back there. But here's what's missed. You know, basically a lot of times people read the Sermon on the Mount and they go, Jesus, this is Jesus' um, you know, morality. This is his ethical standard. This is his, you know, like all this stuff. And they put it out there and they go, oh, it's just too utopian. It's too idealistic. It's not, re it's not reality. Like no one could actually measure up to that or live up to that, um, but actually, Jesus says, no, it is absolutely possible. It is absolutely true, and John Mark Comer points out in his book, we miss these two little phrases in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, right after the Beatitudes, where Jesus says, blessed are those who, you know, remember the Beatitudes in the beginning of Matthew 5, and then on the heels of that, in Matthew 5, verse 19, he says these words, he says, therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices, whoever what? Practices, whoop, can we go back? Nope, there we go. And teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever practices, the call is to practice, not a set of doctrinal beliefs and getting them just like right and memorized so that we can rattle them off and say the right things, but actually live a certain way of life. He ends at the end of Matthew chapter seven with a similar thing, which is what he says in verse 26 and 27 of Matthew seven. If we go to the next slide. But everyone who, has hears, uh, who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, you see it? Is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. And he goes on to say, but those who do put these words of mine, in, uh, these words of mine, those who do put them into practice will be like the one who built their house on the rock even when the winds and the rain and all that comes and the storms come, then your house will stand firm. It's about practice. And anyone knows 
If you want to live the life of Jesus, if you want to live his lifestyle, it's going to take practice. Anyone knows, the minute you start trying to do and live into something new, you're not very good at it at first, are you? Right? I mean, I remember learning to play an instrument. I play a couple of instruments. And, and trumpet was one that I learned. Bless my parents and my neighbors. Because you all know when you start out learning an instrument, you're rubbish, eh? Let's be honest, pretty rubbish. And I've got a couple of daughters who are learning instruments and thanks be to God, they're doing really well. Um, uh, but when they started out, they were rubbish too, you know, just like I was. Like anytime you start anything, you, 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 just, gotta, you just gotta start, like if you're learning a new language, right? You, you're rubbish as you're beginning, you know? You just gotta keep practicing. You gotta keep working at it. You know, I've, I've talked before about like training to run a marathon. Like anyone who wants to run a marathon, like most of you, I know I'm seeing a couple of athletes in the room, so I'll say most of you, if you tried to go out tomorrow morning and run 42.2 kilometers, you'll die. You'll be carked up. You'll, like, you'll, honestly, you'll cark it on the side of the road leaking lung fluid or something like that, you know? Like, you just won't make it. But if you practice, if you train, and you go out tomorrow morning and you run two kilometers, and then next week it's three kilometers, and then four kilometers, and the week after that you go five, and before you know it, you'll be running 10 kilometers, and then 15, and then 20, you know, and over time, maybe by the end of the year, you, you, like running a marathon may never come easily. I don't think it'll ever be easy for anyone to run a marathon, but you might become the kind of person for whom running a marathon is within your capability. I think that's what Jesus is getting at when he says in the Sermon on the Mount, if you put these things into practice, then the Sermon on the Mount, the way, this way of life, if you put them into practice, you'll be rubbish at first, but keep practicing, keep training, keep showing up, keep doing it, and in time, you'll become the kind of person for whom living the way of Jesus, as depicted in the Sermon on the Mount, is well within your capabilities. Because actually, over time, it becomes far less about your capabilities and way more about the life of Christ inside of you. <laughs> that's shaping your behaviors, that's shaping your attitudes, that's shaping your motivations, that's, right? You, you see how it works? And so, for us here at The Well, we're going on a journey that we wanna be the kind of people who apprentice properly our lives to Jesus. That we be those who say, yes, we're gonna reorient our entire lives around being with Jesus, becoming like him and doing what he does. And the way we talk about that around here is that we wanna be people of presence, formation and mission. We wanna be disciples who are committed to seeking after the presence of God. We know how to hold and host the presence of God so well. Because I think this, this, is, this is critical in this moment in our world. We need to be people of presence who are so marked and shaped by the presence of God ourselves individually, who are so marked and shaped by the presence of God in, in community, one with another, that we just hunger for it and we need it because we need and, and And look, I know God is omnipresent, always everywhere present, but that's not the kind of presence we're talking about. We're talking about the manifest, tangible presence of God when he shows up and shows his glory and shows his might. That's the kind of people we wanna be marked by, right? Because when we know that's what, that's what we need actually in our world. When you walk into, a, into an environment where, the, where God is, you know, the presence of God is and you just go, God is here. 
And it calls for consecration, it calls for deep humility, it calls for us, the fear of God becomes the immediate and default response because you say, oh God, this is who you are. But it's actually the thing that would begin to mark us as a community. So over the next two weeks, we're gonna be teaching on what we mean when we talk about becoming a people marked by the tangible presence of God that we be disciples who are shaped by this, that we know how to practice and hold and cultivate and seek after the presence of God, hunger after it, and that that would define and mark us as a people. Like in Exodus, when God's people, you know, they already had all kinds of defining markers in their life, circumcision and a whole bunch of rules about what to eat and what not to eat and how to dress and how not to dress and who to hang out with and who not to hang out with. And They had all kinds of other markers and laws and things but they said, oh God, do, if your presence does not go with us, then don't send us up from here. They knew, yes, we can have all of these other markers. Yes, we can have all of these other practices, but if, it's not, if we're not marked by the presence of God, formation, that we'd be, we'd be a people of formation who show up again and again and again come before Jesus, allowing his life to totally reorient and change us completely over and over and over that we submit to the process of being formed spiritually formed into the image and likeness of Jesus this is thoroughly Wesleyan by the way in case you're wondering you're in a Wesleyan church <laughs> this is who we are we'd be people who by the grace of God increasingly become more and more like Jesus so that we can sit around and pat ourselves on the back and feel really good about ourselves nah so that we can be people who go radically and sacrificially on mission. That we would give ourselves for the sake of our city. That we would give ourselves for the sake of our nation and our communities. And our, that we would give ourselves in order to bring, like that line in Willard's quote, the kingdom of the heavens into any and every sphere of human society. That that be true of who we are. And if we are marked by the presence of Jesus, if our very, not just our behaviors, our externals, but our actual motivations of our hearts are so reoriented and formed in the way of Jesus, then we can't help but carry the presence of Jesus wherever we go. And so I believe that as we go, we would see tens and hundreds and thousands of people have an opportunity to hear this invitation from Jesus, come follow me, and they'll say, Yes, this is what I've been looking for my whole life. I'm believing that when we show up in places that actually God will be there and there'll be incredible opportunity. We'd, we'd hear regular stories of, of miracles happening, of you know, healings and deliverances and, and provision that only God, you know, only God, those kind of stories, that that would just become the norm. That would just become the norm because when we start to see revival breaking out in the church, it always has a ripple effect in the world always always and so that's what i'm believing for that's what we're going after as a church and uh, i hope you'll join me and and maybe you're sitting there and you're going yeah 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 okay clint that's all exciting and that's all good but you know you're a pastor you've been doing this for a while you know um i'm not you don't know me here's here's the best part you remember uh, take us back to our, our, our our scripture reading in the text remember in mark the reason why i included mark 8 because Jesus would regularly stand before groups of people and say, whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever. He didn't come just for the best of the best or the elite, no, no, no. He came for whoever wants to be my disciple. 
That's for anyone and everyone. It doesn't matter what your past is. You know, maybe you think you, you're disqualified because of your past, because of what you've done or what you've said or, you know, whatever, and you go, yeah, there's no way God could ever use me. There's no way God would ever want me. There's no way, you know. You may not believe it's possible, but I'm standing here this morning based on the truth of God's Word to say, He believes in you. He believes that it's possible. And He says, whoever will hear my call and will come take up their cross, deny themselves and follow me.